0: So we're going to pick up kind of where we left off. Now, at this point in the series, we're going to, if if you're kind of a chronological nut, you're kind of a type A personality, we're going to be jumping around a little bit. Um, So you're going to see that at this point, we're going to go backwards. We're going to look at an earlier portion of Luther's life. And occasionally we're going to fast forward uh, because we're really, at this point, I'm less concerned about the history, the history is important, as I am about the theology that came out of the history. And so we're going to look at Luther in the earlier days of his life. We've already established the fact he was a monk. He was an Augustinian monk. Um, He uh, became a monk because of a kind of a Damascus Road experience. He was actually at the University of Erfurt. He was studying to be a lawyer. His dad wanted him to be a lawyer, and um, he was caught in a lightning storm. Now, there's different variations on this story, depending on what biographer you read, but basically, he was caught in a thunderstorm, a very violent storm, and he called out. uh, and, And what's interesting is he didn't call out to God. He called out to Saint Anne, who is the patron saint of minors. Now, why would he call out to St. Anne? Because his dad was a miner, And so he had probably heard about St. Anne a lot in their home growing up. And so he gets caught in the thunderstorm, lightning's hitting all around him, and he calls out to St. Anne, and he basically says, save me and I'll become a monk. Well, he lived and he kept his word. And he went immediately, within the next few days, he went to the monastery and he became a novice, then told his dad. Now, you can imagine his dad wasn't real happy because he was becoming a lawyer. And in that day and age, uh, parents wanted their their young children to take care of them. There was no welfare. There was no uh, way for them to really take care of themselves in their old age. And so they wanted their kids to do well and make money. And being a lawyer would have made him... um, rich in those day and age. So he tells his dad, no, I'm going to become a monk. His dad's not real happy, but he'd already gotten the haircut. He'd already you know, done the deal. And so you uh, can't go back after you get that bowl cut. Um, so he was an Augustinian. Uh, it was a very, very strict order. It was one of the, the newer religious orders. Uh, the Dominicans were probably the oldest. And so he joins this thing and he becomes extremely, extremely devout. I think Luther was always devout. I think prior to becoming a monk, he was devout. I think it's the way he was wired. It's much like studying the life of Paul. Paul was an incredibly devout, dedicated, driven individual before he became a believer, and he was even more so after becoming a believer. Uh, And so you see this in Luther, and and just studying his life, I think he was OCD. I I think he was just one of those guys that if you had been around him, you'd you'd have just gone, would you just kind of like relax, slow down? Um, you're too intense. And, and that drive possessed him in everything that he did, especially becoming a monk. And so to become a monk, he would go to the monastery and he would prostrate himself in front of the leaders of the monastery, the abbot and others. And he would basically say, I'm here to become a novice. I want to become a monk. And they would ask him, what is it you're seeking? What is it you want? Why are you here? Because a lot of men would show up running away from something. They were running away from the law. They thought they could hide, Uh, had an affair with some guy's wife, and he's out to find them, and they go to the monastery to hide, and and so they want to know, why are you here? And that was really important. And the the answer he was to give was, I'm here for what? God's grace and mercy. Now, those two words are going to be important to what we're studying, not only this morning, but throughout the rest of the series, grace and mercy. They're not common to Protestants. We don't own these two words. Uh, Catholics believe in grace and mercy as well. As you can see, he's at the monastery. He's becoming a monk and he says, I want God's grace and mercy. And that would begin a new life for him, a radically new life for him, a very uh, hard and difficult life for him, where he was going to have to do things that he had never done before. And part of, part of what they would do is they would sit down with this young novice, this guy who wants to become a monk, and they would explain to him what it is you're going to go through. Things like the renunciation of self-will, scant diet, rough clothing, vigils by night, labors by day, mortification of the flesh, the reproach of poverty, the shame of begging, and the distaste- distastefulness of cloistered existence. Why would they tell them that day one? because many of them will walk away. It's like, I think if we were more uh, prone in uh, sharing the gospel, if we would tell people the truth about the gospel, uh, that it's not going to be as easy as you think it is. And it's not going to be a piece of cake. It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. There's going to be trials. There's going to be tribulations along the way. Many people would walk away. Just like many of the disciples who were following Jesus, not the 12, but the crowds, left him as soon as he started talking about, take up up your cross and follow me. They bailed on him. So they would warn these guys, it's not going to be easy. And then when he would um, agree that, okay, I'm willing to do those things, they would pray this prayer over him. Bless thou thy servant. Hear, O Lord, our heartfelt pleas and deign to confer thy blessing on this thy servant. "...whom in thy holy name we have clad in the habit of a monk, that he may continue with thy help, faithful in thy church, and merit eternal life." That's the key, key phrase here. Merit eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, there's a lot of things in that little prayer there that we would agree with. We would agree with through Jesus Christ our Lord. We would agree with um, the faithful help of Christ and the church. But the key phrase is, "...merit eternal life." Part of the reason people, um, men would go into a monastery and the women would become uh, nuns was it was in that day and age seen as the, the fast track to getting right with God. If you became a monk, if you became a nun, it fast tracked you. It was um, the pious life. And so here's this guy and he is, they're basically saying, give him, Lord, what he needs to earn or merit eternal life. So what does Luther do? Luther spends the first year as a novice. You had to earn your way into uh, the cloister. You just didn't get immediately accepted. But he took it with a vengeance. And here's what he said about himself years later. He said, I was a good monk. And I kept the rules of my order so strictly that I may say that if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. I don't know if that's a word, but it is now. All my brothers in the monastery who knew me will bear me out. If I had kept up any longer, I should have killed myself with vigils, prayers, reading, and other work. There are so many stories about Martin Luther uh, during this time period where he would uh, he would sleep outside in winter with no blanket, just in his, his uh, robe uh, to kind of beat his body. He would uh, go without food. He would fast. He would do so many things... It, all in an effort to what? Earn merit, to do the right thing. And, and it began within him a, a, a real battle about how do I get to heaven? How do I please God? How will I ever be justified by God? Well, he tried everything. He did the vigils. He did the prayers. He did fast. He, he would um, go through all kinds of things to try to do what the church was telling him to do the seven sacraments in order to gain favor with God, and it it caused this incredible battle within himself because he was, I think, OCD and driven. He never felt like he had done enough. Uh, I, I I need to do more. That wasn't enough. As a matter of fact, it's the, the, one of the stories is told where he uh, would go to confession, and his his uh, confessor the older priest who would take his confession is a guy named Staupitz, and they were very, very close. And Luther would come and he would confess, and then he would walk away, and then he'd come right back and he goes, oh, I thought of something else. And he'd confess again. And then he'd walk away, and he'd come, oh, wait, there's another one. He'd come back and he'd confess again. Because he believed that you have to confess all your sins. And so he would lay awake at night thinking, where have I sinned? What have I done? What do I need to confess? And finally, his confessor said, okay, stop. Go kill your parents, then come and confess that and have something worth confessing. You know, he just said, this is all silly. You're you're coming up with all these little bitty things. Have something worthy of confessing. But Luther was driven. He, He knew that if I don't confess my sins, I can't get forgiveness. And if I don't get forgiveness, I can't be cleansed. And if I don't get cleansed, I can't be justified. And I can't be right with God. So this drive just drove him crazy. And so he knew that if, if I'm a monk, i got to do the things they tell me to do. i got to keep all the orders of the, the monastery. And, and really, he was told it's not impossible. You can do these things. Why would it not be impossible? Because it was the path to salvation. Do these things, and you will get where you want to go. You will have what you want, which is the blessing of God and the grace of God, and you will be justified. But it did take a lot of work and a lot of merit. So here's what Erwin Lutzer says in his book. He says, the monks were reminded that purgatory existed for those who were not bad enough for hell or good enough for heaven. God was portrayed as angry and merciful, vengeful and forgiving. But if one followed the teachings of the church and took advantage of its many means of grace, one could reasonably hope that a merciful God would receive the penitent. Now, it's interesting, we use the term grace, they use the term grace, we just have a different idea about grace. You may have heard grace uh, explained or defined as uh, the power you need to live the life you've been called to live. Now, I I think that's a good definition, I just think it's an incomplete definition. In the Roman Catholic Church, at least in this day and age, in Luther's day and age, grace was seen as a commodity. It was seen as something God gives you and it, it helps you do what you need to do. It's a, it's a co-labor thing. God gives you the grace you need, but you still need to do your part to earn salvation. And that's where we get the idea of works righteousness, the idea of grace, but it's not grace alone. You know, We, we, we talk about grace alone. The Catholic Church doesn't agree with that. They think it's grace with your effort. Grace. The power of God and your effort combined helps you do the things you need to do to earn salvation. That's not what we would believe. He goes on and says, All that anyone can do as they approach death was to appeal to Mary, asking that God would show some leniency in saving grace. Give me more grace. It's a commodity. Luther was terror-stricken at the thought of Christ as judge. He sought to lay hold of every means of grace that was available to him. He knew that he could never get to heaven without the merit of Christ, but he also believed that he had to earn such merit. See, that's, that's critical for us to understand that there's the merit of Christ, but you've got to earn it. You've got to deserve it. You've got to do something. So it's the idea of your effort combined with Christ's merit will get you where you need to go. But if you don't do your part, all bets are off. And so th- He, as a monk, wrestled with that, struggled with that, and never felt like he had done enough. Now, I was talking to one of the guys this morning before we started, and I don't think that mentality is unique to Catholicism. I grew up Southern Baptist. My dad was my pastor. And I grew up with a a total mindset that I got to keep God happy. Now, my dad never said that. He never uh, preached that. But What I heard was, you need to pray every day. You need to read your Bible every day. Um, And when you don't do those things, God's not happy. And so I used to, and this was even into my adulthood when I had kids, if I didn't pray for my kids every day, I thought something was going to happen to them. They were going to get hit by a bus which is kind of weird because my kids were homeschooled, so the likelihood of that was pretty nil. But I, I grew up with the idea that God was never happy with me because I never did enough. How much do you need to read the Bible? How often do you need to pray? How fervently do you need to pray? How many verses do you need to memorize to keep God happy? And so My image of God growing up in a Southern Baptist home was that God was always in heaven with his arms folded, looking down, shaking his head and going, you are a loser. You haven't done enough. It's not unique to Catholicism, this idea that I got to keep God happy. I got to keep God happy. We will say, I believe in salvation by grace alone and Christ alone through faith alone, but then we'll work our butt off to try to earn entry into heaven. I gotta do more, I gotta do more, I gotta do more. And it, it, this was the mindset that Luther had as he was in the monastery and as he was wrestling with, how do I get right with God? And he fasted so much, even his friends worried about his health. If you read about Luther's later life, Luther had incredibly poor health and it all goes back to the fact that he didn't take care of himself when he was in the monastery. He, he abused his body. He practiced vigils and prayers way beyond what was expected. As a matter of fact, his his, uh, supervisors at some point got so frustrated with him that they thought he's either trying to escape work, because in a monastery you had to work. That was part of the deal. And he was always praying. He was always fasting. He was always too weak to work. And they would go, he's just lazy trying to get out of work. And then they realized, no, he's just overly committed and we don't need him here. So they said, hey, why don't you go back to school and get your theology degree? Become a teacher. Go teach theology, but we don't need you here. And that's how he ended up becoming a theologian and a professor. He used to sleep outside with blankets, without blankets to mortify the flesh. He used to beg to teach himself humiliation See, this is the mindset that he was living with, and at the end of the day, he never could satisfy God. There's probably some guys in the room who felt that. You know, I, I, I did this, I did this, I went to this Bible study and that Bible study, and I went, went to this conference, and, I, and I, I still don't feel like God's satisfied with me. What a terrible way to live. And th- one of the things that he would do is flagellate himself. It wasn't... Um, unique to him the the monks all did it but he would do it to excess and just take a whip and beat himself till the 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 back of his back would just be in shreds why to somehow earn favor with god and he never felt like he had it so according to the roman catholic church in order to be declared just or right with god you must first be sanctified to the point that you exhibit a righteousness acceptable to God. So as we talk about justification, what's really important for us to understand is that um, we all have to stand before God as just, righteous. But if you think that you can somehow do enough good deeds to become righteous, the problem with that is what kind of righteousness do we need? we need a Christ-like righteousness, a sinless, flawless righteousness. How in the world can any of us, because we have sin natures and because we're prone to sin, ever do enough good deeds to get that righteous? Because God's standard is Christ. And so we can't, and the scriptures clearly tell us that all of my righteous deeds are as what? As filthy rags. There's nothing you can do to become that kind of righteous. It's not about quantitative. It's about qualitative. It's the righteousness of God, his kind of righteousness, not your brand, not my brand. If I give you a standard of righteousness, you could probably live up to it. If I say, well, be like me, you could probably exceed me in righteousness. But I'm not the standard Jesus Christ is. And so this is what we're battling with throughout this thing, that you will never achieve a righteousness like that which God demands. Why? Because you're a sinner. Because you can't pull it off. It's impossible. It's like when God gave the uh, law of Moses to the Israelites. The New Testament clearly tells us the law was given to reveal sin not so they could live up to it and keep it because they never could. They couldn't keep those laws. The laws were there to tell them you can't keep these laws. And the Scriptures tell us if you keep nine out of the ten commandments, you're a sinner. You're unrighteous. You've got to keep all of them in perfection. And so this idea that I can somehow achieve righteousness, even with the grace of God, that I can somehow live up to a standard of righteousness that equals that of Christ is is ridiculous. It's impossible. And so this idea of acceptability to God was what was driving Martin Luther and everybody at that day and age. Everybody wanted to be acceptable. So according to Roman teaching, at this point in time, justification takes place primarily through the seven sacraments. Now, there are seven of them. Baptism, confirmation, the Eucharist, penance, anointing of the sick, holy orders, and marriage. Those are still the seven sacraments of the Catholic Church today. All of these are what are called means of grace. So when you do these things, you get grace. What's the grace for? So that you can continue to do good deeds to earn salvation. See, justification for for a Roman Catholic is really very similar to, and sometimes synonymous with, sanctification. The growth in holiness, the growth in Christ-likeness. It's a journey. So you are being justified and becoming justified all throughout your life. Why is there a purgatory? Why is there a doctrine of purgatory? And we kind of touched on this, but if in your life you do not achieve the righteousness you need to get you into heaven, you have purgatory. I've, I've been reading a lot more about purgatory. What's really interesting about purgatory is in uh, later uh, Catholic theology, purgatory became, in Luther's day, purgatory was always talked about in, the, in, a, in essence of time, 10,000 years. Uh, when you bought an indulgence, that, that indulgence could get you 10,000 years out of purgatory, 100,000 years. It had a time attached to it. Later, Catholic theology says, uh, no, it's, it doesn't have anything to do with time. It's, uh, that's a human idea that it, it's just, it's a thing. It's, we can't really put a time limit on it. But the idea is that you're going to be there until what? Until you've done enough good deeds to become just, to become righteous, because that was critical to their mindset. So here's what the Catechism of the Catholic Church in 1131 says, The sacraments are efficacious or effective signs of grace instituted by Christ, entrusted to the Church, by which divine life is dispensed to us. We get this life, this power. The visible rites by which the sacraments are celebrated signify and make presence, present the grace proper to each sacrament. They bear fruit in those who receive them with the required disposition. So I go to the Eucharist, I, I Take the elements of the Eucharist. I get grace. The grace gives me the power to live the life I've been called to live. I do good deeds, and those good deeds make me more and more just or righteous until eventually I have the righteousness required to be accepted by God into his kingdom. So you can see where here's a Luther, and he's doing all this stuff, and he's like, but Luther knew his heart. Luther knew he was sinful, and Luther knew that he had evil thoughts even when he slept. And so he's like, I, I, there's things I've done I don't even know about. There's, things, there's sins I've committed I'm, I'm ignorant of because I, I, I'm just not aware of them yet. And so how will I ever confess it so I can be absolved from it and receive the penance, the deeds I need to do to take care of it? So you see this kind of track of, it's really a, a, almost like the, the wheel in a, a cage that you're just running on and you're getting nowhere because you're always trying to make up for sins, and then you sin again, and then you're always... It's more and more and more. And this is where the issue of penance comes in. And for Luther, penance became a huge roadblock to getting right with God because he feared, I didn't confess enough. I, I, I didn't... There's a sin missing, and that's why he would leave... He'd be walking away, and then he'd go, ah, oh, there's another one. He would have to go back and confess again. And it's why he drove Stop It's Nuts. You know, he, he wanted to go home. It's like, okay, we're done, and then he's back. Because he just couldn't rectify that there's more sin. There's things that keep coming into my mind. So he did it regularly. He did it repeatedly. And he knew that if he didn't confess his sin, he would not get grace And Why is that important? Without grace, I don't have the power to do the things I need to do to become righteous in the eyes of God. So You see that kind of futile running and running and running and you never get to where you want to get. You ever had those kind of dreams? You ever had a dream where you're running away from something and you can't get away? It's like you're running in mud I think that's how Luther felt. I'm running and I'm running and I'm running and I'm exhausted and I'm beating in my body and I just, I'm never getting to where I want to get. And it drove him crazy. Here's how he thought. Sins to be forgiven must be confessed. To be confessed, they must be recognized and remembered. If they're not recognized and remembered, they can't be confessed. If they're not confessed, they can't be forgiven. Can you see the, see the mindset? And you may go, God, well, that guy's an idiot. But don't we do the same thing? Don't we wonder about, <clears throat> have I done enough? Did, did, uh, you, know, you may hear that some, somebody say, well, man, I had a great quiet time this morning. And you immediately think, God, I didn't have a quiet time. God, he's more spiritual than I am. Uh, or somebody say, man, I, you know, I, I, I just memorized three verses in James. And you're like, I've, I don't even know where James is you know and you just you beat yourself up and you just don't think i've done enough or you you memorize a verse finally and then 3 weeks later you can't even remember what book it was in and you and you just feel so defeated and that's how luther felt that's how we feel because we're driven by what the need to achieve it's a curse you know there's some guys in this room who are so driven and they're so Type A, and, and that's a wonderful thing, and it'll get you very far in business. It will get you nowhere in righteousness. Drivenness is not the answer. That's what Luther was going to find out. He was the monk of all monks. He was the king of monkery, and he, he just couldn't get to where he wanted to go. What did he want more than anything? To be righteous before God, to get to heaven. But he couldn't get there. So he, he, he was literally plagued by this. And here's what he began to realize. Remember, as he starts reading the Bible, what does he see? All your sins, all your righteous deeds are as, as dirty rags. You're a sinner by nature. You're corrupted. Uh, no one does good. No, not one. And he began to realize that that's me. I, I got a I corrupt nature, and I've got sins I'm not even aware of. You know, one of the things Luther struggled with, and I remember when I was growing up as a, as a teenager, if you had... Um, Immoral dreams, I used to wake up just in a sweat, a literal sweat, just think, oh, God, what a sinner. What, it's in my brain. I, even at night, I have these you know, improper dreams that I shouldn't be dreaming about. And, and you may still have that struggle today, and, and you realize that even when I'm asleep, I sin. I, even my thoughts, you know, I try to be godly. You can come to church here to worship. And I know it's happened to you because it happens to me. You come here to church to worship, and you're just all pumped up, and you want to worship the Lord, and you may even go to the service, and you hear the sermon, you sing the songs, you give your offering, and you feel like you're tight with God. You walk out, and here comes a woman, and you go, man, if I could just have that. And your mind goes to the races, and suddenly you're lusting after some guy's wife, and and, and you're like, what is wrong with me? You can never achieve the righteousness that you're looking to achieve. And, and what it did for Luther is he began to look at Jesus as nothing but judge. And he's out to condemn me. See, when Luther read the passage in Romans that says, the righteousness of God, what he read was, God is righteous, you're not. He's judge, you're a sinner, he's gonna judge you. That's all he saw. So his concept of God was always judge. That was my concept of God growing up. God was my judge. So when I read the Bible, I was never encouraged by the Bible. I was convicted. So what did I do with that? I stopped reading the Bible. It's too convicting. I keep seeing sin. I keep seeing accusations, and I just, why read it? This is no fun. And so my view of God was skewed. His view of God was skewed. His view of Christ was skewed. And he feared God. He didn't love God. He feared God. He even said, I hated God because he saw him as this judge who was never happy. You know, I've, I've probably told you guys this before, but when I was growing up, I was the, f- the fourth of four. My sister was three years older than me. My sister was the perfect child. And I was reminded of it constantly. And she had straight A's all the way through school, all the way through college. And in, in high school, we went to the same high school. I can never remember bringing home a report card my mom didn't cry over. That, and that's a, that's a true statement. And some of them were bad, but some of them were not that bad. But my, every time I'd hand her, she just crying. and she goes, why can't you be like your sister? And, and I lived with this constant, you know, why can't you be this? Why can't you do this? Why can't you? Why can't you? And my, my mom's 96 right now. And, and every time I get with her, you know, um, she'll always say, well, Joy, well, Joy, well, Joy, that's my sister. And I'm like, am I still dog meat? Am I still, you know, I'm a pastor. I, I teach a Bible study. Come on, mom. Give me a little slack. I've given these wonderful grandkids. Come on. But it's it's that idea of achievement and battling with, am I enough? So here's this poor guy, Luther, and he's just in turmoil. He is battling inside. And he says, it's not against all natural reason that God out of his mere whim deserts men, hardens them, damns them as if he delighted in sins and in such torments of the wretched." of the wretched for eternity. He who is said to be of such mercy and good. See she what he's saying? Here's this God who's supposed to be rich in mercy, rich in grace, and yet he's condemning and he's damning and, and nobody can live up to his standard. He says, this appears iniquitous and intolerable to God by which many have been offended in all ages and who would not be? I was myself more than once driven to the very abyss of despair so that I wished I had never been created. Love God, I hated him. Now, I know you've been there. I know you've had those days when you shake your fist at God and go, you are, you know, screw you. I'm tired of this. I'm tired of trying. I can't make you happy. I can't do enough. You've got a warped view of God, just like he had a warped view of God. He didn't understand mercy. He didn't understand grace. And he ended up hating God rather than loving him. But something happened. Something changed him, and he found the answer here in Scripture. Remember, he's studying the Scriptures. He discovered this rare book. He discovered a book that told him things that he never knew before, that the church hadn't taught him, and he began to study it, and he began to realize that it's not by works, it's by grace. And it came from teaching the book of Romans. Now, some of you guys also go to BSF, and you're studying Romans right now. What a great combination, this study and the book of Romans. Because this is where he got most of his information about God. And in the study of Romans, and he was also teaching it. Remember they made him a theologian? And he began to teach Romans. He had to study it to teach it. And here's one of the verses he ran across. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith for it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The key phrase he kept running into is the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God. And he saw it as nothing but a description of the holiness and perfection of God and a reminder of the imperfection of himself. And that drove him crazy. Crazy. He's righteous, I'm not. He's holy, I'm not. He's perfect, I'm sinful, and I never will get to where I need to be, and I have to be righteous to be accepted. And we would all agree with that, right? You have to be righteous to get into heaven. You can't get into heaven with sin. You You can't be marred and get into heaven. And so that phrase, the righteousness of God, scared the bejeebers out of him because it was unachievable. I can't be like that. And it was God's perfect righteousness, his holiness, that condemned Luther and condemns unrighteous, sinful men like you and I. He's holy, I'm not. He's righteous, I'm not. He's perfect, I'm not. And so Luther looked at that and went, there's no way I can win. And, and how do I live by faith? Because I keep sinning. I, keep ha- I come up with more things to confess than I do to be proud about. I sin more than I do good deeds. And, and so it was a battle that drove him to the brink. And he was so frustrated, but, but the, the blessing of God, the joy of God was that his leaders made him a theologian. And because he was a theologian, they told him, you need to teach Psalms, and you need to teach Galatians, and you need to teach Romans. So he had to go study those books, and it's in those books, those three books that he began to really realize what it was all about was he ran across this verse, Romans 4, 3, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. What? Abraham, Old Testament, counted as righteousness? You mean he he didn't have to do something? It was counted? He ran across this. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as what? Righteousness. My faith? It's not my work. It's my faith? See, can you imagine what this was doing to him as he began to wrestle for the first time with these kinds of passages? And and this was not taught to him. This was not common. Uh, This was not the way these verses were interpreted in the church and even in the monasteries. And so he is having to wrestle with some pretty weighty concepts. Then he goes on in Romans and says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Since we have been justified, how? By faith, not by works, by faith. There's an interesting passage, and this isn't in your notes, but I ran across it this week. Just listen. This is a story. When Jesus uh, fed the five thousand, you remember he miraculously fed the five thousand, and he left, got on a boat, went to the other side, and the crowd follows him. Why? Why do you think they followed him? Because they fed. He fed them. And so the next day, the crowd that remained came and found him, and they come up to him, and they they say, "Hey, how'd you get here? How'd you get over here to the other side?" Well, they knew how he got there. They're just trying to strike up a conversation. And Jesus says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You're here because I fed you, and you're here to be fed again. Now you want breakfast. I fed you dinner, now you want breakfast. Then he says this, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Now, notice what he says. He says, don't work for perishable things like food, work for imperishable things like eternal life. But you could read that. If you stop there, you go, well, see, Jesus says you got to work for salvation. He's not done. He says, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, give, for on him God the Father set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do? To be doing the works of God. Okay, what what am I supposed to do? Give me a list. Give me 10 things. And Jesus said, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. What's the only work required of us? Belief. Belief in what? Jesus. Not yourself, not your effort. Do the work that leads to what? Eternal life. What's that work? Belief in Jesus Christ. See, what they believed was, you can feed me food. What they needed to believe is, you can feed me with eternal life. You can give me righteousness. So, this idea of works was becoming a a real kind of a problem for Luther as he began to study the scriptures. And really, in studying Romans, which is not one of the four gospels, he discovered the gospel. How do you get saved? The righteousness of God was not a characteristic of God that I need to fear. In other words, he's righteous, he's holy, he's perfect, I'm not. But it's a gift to be received. How? Through Christ. See, what's really cool for me is I don't just get God's grace. I get Christ's righteousness. Now, for a lot of us in the room, this is, this is really hard for us to grasp because when you look in the mirror in the morning, you don't see a righteous person. Because you know your heart, you know your sins, you know your thoughts. But when we accept Christ, what we get is the righteousness of Christ. That's what justification is all about. We are made just through Christ. Through Christ, God provided a righteousness we could never achieve on our own. Because what God demands is perfect righteousness, like him. You and I can't provide it. We can't get there. We can't do enough So what does he do? He gives us Christ in the form of man who lived a perfect life life, and was sinless, and he becomes the righteousness we need. And we get it all in one fell swoop, which then allows us to live by faith continually. He says this, when I grasped this, when I studied this, that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us, through faith, thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. In other words, it's, it's like a aha moment for him. I don't have to do all this stuff anymore. I don't have to flagellate myself. I don't have to sleep out in the cold in the snow. I don't have to earn favor. I don't have to make myself just. I am just as far as God is concerned. And that's the amazing, one of the amazing things about the gospel is when you become a believer in Jesus Christ, God from that point forward looks at you and who does he see? Christ. He sees the righteousness of Christ covering you. You will never earn the kind of righteousness you need to be accepted by God. He has given you the righteousness you need through Christ. It's called the great exchange. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, He took on our sin, your sin, my sin, and he died and we took on his righteousness. And we are now clothed in the righteousness of Christ. It does not mean that you are righteous in everything you do at this point and you know that to be true. It just means that when he looks at you, when God sees you, he sees you as righteous. And for Luther, this was life-changing. When he came to understand the gospel, he realized that Jesus made a perfect payment for all of his sins and that if he received that gift... Christ's death on the cross, he would be declared righteous until the day of his death. Man, if you don't find joy in that, if you don't find peace in that, you don't understand the gospel. You really don't. And so many of us in the church today don't understand the gospel because we're living still by works, trying to earn favor with God. So the Roman church taught that justification required this faith plus works. You got to do something. Grace plus merit. The reason you get grace is so that you can do the things to get the merit you need. Jesus plus inherent righteousness. So here's what they believe, and they still believe this. You have to get righteous to be seen as righteous. In other words, you have to become righteous. For you to stand before God, He's going to look at you and go, wait, 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 you're not quite righteous enough. Go work on it, go to purgatory. But see, our belief is that when you stand before God, he looks at you and he sees the righteousness of Christ and he says, come into my kingdom. Totally different way of looking at it, but a critical way of looking at it. Because I know, in spite of me, I know where I'm going when I die. If I get hit by a bus today, if I drop dead right now, I know where I'm going. And it's not based on the way I live my life today. It's based on the way Jesus Christ lived his life. So the reformers rediscover the joy of justification based on faith alone. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, lest anybody should boast. See, nobody's going to boast in heaven. Nobody's going to walk around going, look at my list of good deeds. No, what we're going to do is look and go, I'm shocked I'm here. I'm surprised I got here. But I got here the same way you did by Jesus Christ. We hold that no one is justified by faith apart from the works of the Lord. One is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Romans 5, 8, and 9. We now have been justified by his blood. We are made right with God. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you are as right with God as you will ever be. You are righteous in God's eyes. That does not absolve us from doing good deeds. The scriptures are very clear that we should do good deeds. We should live righteous lives. We should pursue righteousness but for a totally different reason than the Catholic church would teach. It's not to get to heaven. It's because I have been declared a son of God and I should live like one. It's it's driven by gratitude, not earning. And that's a totally different thing. It's a totally different thing. So how did the church respond to all of this? Well, the Council of Trent, 1546, is when they finally codified so many of their thoughts. Up until this time, the Catholic Church really had no systemized theology. And so they were forced, because of the Reformation, to start putting their responses in writing, and they did. And you can go read the documents of the Council of Trent, but here's just a part of it. Having therefore been thus justified and made the friends and domestics of God, advancing from virtue to virtue, in other words, you're growing, they are renewed. As the Apostle says, day by day, that is, by mortifying the members of their own flesh, and by presenting them as instruments of justice unto sanctification, they, through the observance of the commandments of God and of the church, faith cooperating with good works, you see that? You got to do your part. Increase in that justice which they have received through the grace of Christ, and are still further justified. As it is written, he that is just, let him be justified still and again. Be not afraid to be justified even to death. And also, do you see that by works a man is justified and not by faith alone? So the Roman Catholic Church then, as it does today, would say, do you see that by works a man is justified, not by faith alone? That's why we say faith alone, and they say no. Faith plus what? Works. You have to do your part. You have to keep being justified. It's a process where we believe it's a one time event. If you place your faith in Christ, you are righteous. They go on, wherefore no one ought to flatter himself up with faith alone, fancying that by faith alone he is made an heir and will obtain an inheritance. And then they go on, and I'm not going to go through these canons, but they basically just continue to say, faith alone is not enough. You have to do your work. And if you believe in faith alone, you are cursed. You're anathema. You're wrong. You, you don't understand. But Galatians 1.8 and 9 tells me, as it did Luther, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be a curse. Let him be anathema. If you start preaching faith plus works, let him be anathema. And I'm going to take Paul's words over the Pope's words. Okay, I'm going to take scripture over the counsels of men. As we have said before, so I say again, if anyone is preaching to a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be anathema. Let him be cursed because there's only one way to get saved. Not by your efforts, but by the efforts of Christ that have already been accomplished. He tells the Corinthians the same thing. If someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. He is accusing them, stop listening to this garbage. Stop listening to faith plus this, faith plus that, Jesus plus more. It's not the gospel. You don't have to earn favor with God. Again, it doesn't mean you don't have to do good deeds and that you shouldn't want to live a righteous life, but you don't do it to get to heaven. You do it because you're already accepted by God in heaven. So what do we do with this? These things hinge on this doctrine, salvation, eternal security, assurance of salvation, and sufficiency of Christ. We're going to talk about all these things in the week ahead. But guys, your salvation is key to justification. You are already right. You know you're going to heaven because you've already been justified. You don't have to become increasingly more so. You can have assurance of salvation. You can know that Jesus Christ did it all, and you don't have to do more. So how is one made right with God? Real quickly, this is uh, in your notes, but I'm just going to go through this. We are sinners, right? We're black through and through to the core. But through Christ, we get our sins forgiven. And we end up with no sin. In other words, when we, he looks at us, he sees us without sin. But that, see, not having sin is not enough, right? What you got is a zero. What is it you need? To get into heaven, what do you need? No sin? No, you need righteousness. So right now, I've got no sin, but I got a big old hole because there's nothing in there. So what I need is righteousness. How do I get that? Do I earn it? No, it's given to me. It's given to me by Christ. It's imputed to me, and I'm declared righteous by imputation. I don't have to totally be righteous because, guys, if I died today, I am not a righteous man on, a human, on a human terms. I sin just like you do. I lie. I, I, I think wrong thoughts. But guess what? I am righteous before God because of Jesus Christ. And I hang my hat on that. I don't have to become righteous to be fully seen as God, as just, as the Roman Catholic Church taught. So I'll end with this. R.C. Sproul says, righteousness must be inherent within the person. God must examine his life and find righteousness there. And what he's saying, this is what the Catholic Church taught and what it still teaches. If a person dies in mortal sin, he goes to hell. If a person dies with any sin, with any perfection, any blemish on his soul, he cannot be admitted into heaven, but first must go through the purging fires of purgatory, where his impurities are cleansed away until such a time as righteousness is truly inherent in him. See, guys, we don't believe that. We don't believe you have to keep working and keep earning and keep doing and You are righteous before God, and that is the beauty of the gospel. That is the glory of what it is that we believe, and that's why the Reformation is so important. So here for your table uh, time, here's what I want you to talk about. I want you to go look at Isaiah 64, 6, key verse. What is it about this verse that should make the doctrine of justification extremely appealing to you? And that's where it talks about all of your works, your best works on your best day with your best intentions are nothing but Literally, minstrel rags. Think about that. And why should that make justification as we believe it so rich? What do you think it is about us as human beings that makes us feel like we have to earn everything we're given? Why does this stand in the face of justification? Then finally, look at Ephesians 2 8 and 9 if you have time. Why do you think it's so important that our justification by God is based on faith and not human effort? Why would our ability to boast about our own salvation rob God of glory? Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for these men. Thank you for their faithfulness to come week after week and to listen uh, to these talks. But Father, I, hear, I pray that they not hear me. I, I pray that they hear you, that we have been given this incredible gift of justification. We have been made right with you because of what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross, not what we accomplished through our lives. May we rest in that. May we um, rejoice in that. May we realize, Father, that We have freedom in Christ that allows us now to live righteously, not because we earn it, but because we want to, because we are sons of God. I pray you'd bless the time around the tables, guide the conversations. Uh, I pray that it would be rich and satisfying and encouraging and loving. And I pray all this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Have fun, guys.